Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, Sam Callahan of Swan Bitcoin is rejoining me on the show. Now, many of you enjoyed the previous episode with Sam. That was 336. And basically, for this one, we're talking about the IMF, one of these supranational or international financial organizations that seems to have been making all kinds of anti-Bitcoin and anti-freedom statements in their research and proclamations. So Sam joins me to talk about who they are, how they started, and what they think and what they have been saying about various topics. And of course, we react with our own thoughts on how to respond or at least how to think about some of these different issues, whether they are proof of work, financial crime, transitioning to a low carbon economy, financial stability, and global corruption. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, and Swan Bitcoin can help you if you have friends or family who have a life event coming up and you want to give them a gift. Give them the gift of Bitcoin alongside Swan Bitcoin's world-class education and customer service. With swan.com slash gift, you can gift them a certain amount of money. Your recipient will then sign up and they can then purchase Bitcoin with the amount that you gifted them. But at the same time, they are receiving education about Bitcoin from some of the best in the game. So to create a Bitcoin gift with a custom message, go to swan.com slash gift. Now, in Bitcoin, as we say, not your keys, not your coins. It's important to learn how to self-custody our coins and using the cold card by coinkite.com, this is an easy way to achieve this goal. So with the cold card, you can use it in various configurations. You can use it as a beginner by directly plugging it to your computer. And with the new MK4 coming out, which is shipping now, you can use NFC. So I really like this feature and this pathway to make it easy for Bitcoin beginners. Now, for those of you who are paranoid, of course, you can use the micro SD card and do the air gapping and you can use multi-signature and you can use all kinds of features like the BIP85 child seed feature also. But you can start the journey by getting your cold card over at coinkite.com. Unchained Capital can help you with multi-signature security for your Bitcoin. No matter how careful we are, sometimes things can go wrong. And with multi-signature, you can still make an error without necessarily losing your coins and losing your savings. So, Don't leave your coins with an exchange or a custodian, and you might want to also reconsider single signature hardware wallets and signing devices. With Unchained, you can create a two of three multi-signature vault. They've even got a program that will help you do this. You can pay upfront, they'll ship you the hardware wallets. You'll do a call to teach you how to hold your own keys, and you will also have $1,000 of Bitcoin deposited in your vault. So this is a great way to upgrade your security and give yourself that additional peace of mind. That website is unchained.com. Select the concierge onboarding program and use code Lavera for a discount. And now onto the show with Sam. Sam, welcome back to the show. Stefan, thanks for having me, man. Good to see you. Yeah, it's great to chat with you. And we had a great response on the first episode that you did. Uh, and so uh, really keen to get into it. These big organizations, are they governments? Are they supranational? Are they, what kind of these entities? And today we're going to focus on the IMF. I know you did a thread recently about them. Uh, so, yeah, do you want to just tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what got you into researching the IMF and maybe a little bit around their background? Yeah. So, um, you know, the International Monetary Fund, I looked into them because um, I just think they're one of these organizations that once again act above sovereign nations and kind of infringe on the rights of sovereign nations. And they have really complicated history. And I wanted to just raise some awareness about some of the things, some of the criticisms that I think are really warranted towards the IMF. 
um, and then kind of how Bitcoin perhaps shrinks the IMF or potentially removes their need entirely. So uh, yeah, that's kind of why I started to look into them. Um, I think it's important to understand the problems uh, yeah. that exist in the global financial system. And you know, I have to say before we get into it that the IMF is a very complicated organization. It's both organizationally as well as uh, with they have very complex relationships with each of their borrowing nations. And so what we'll probably get into today is a more superficial level and hopefully just kind of provide listeners with a background of, of where they came from and what their plans are right now with central bank digital currencies and how like Bitcoin kind of plays into that. Yeah, for sure. I think it would be great to start. Well, let's start at the beginning. How did they even start and what kind of entity are they? Yeah, so um, they started in Bretton Woods. So everyone knows Bretton Woods for the creation of the dollar reserve system. But the IMF and the World Bank were both created in that uh, meeting as well. And the reason the IMF was created was in the Great Depression of the 1930s, there was a lot of competitive currency devaluations where countries were uh, devaluing their currencies at the expense of their trading partners. And it was thought at the time that this really deepened the Great Depression. It prolonged it. And so they wanted to stop this from happening in the new system with where the dollar was pegged to the gold at $35 an ounce at a fixed peg. But then all the other currencies were adjustable pegs to the dollar, but they wanted to prevent countries from being able to competitively devalue it. So the primary uh, role of the IMF was to supervise the Bretton Woods system of fixed and adjustable exchange rates. So they uh, were established to supervise and stabilize exchange rates, as well as uh, surveil kind of the global regime of international payments. And so they provided liquidity via short-term loans and lent money to some countries um, going through balance of payments problems. So that's like when a nation's unable to pay you know, essential imports or service their debt payments. The IMF acted like a credit union almost that permits membership access to a pool of resources and provides short-term loans for these countries. And so that's kind of what they started as in the uh, Bretton Woods system from 1944 to 1971. Right. So when it comes to the IMF, as you said, starting around the Bretton Woods era, 1944, how would you say they have shifted or morphed over time as an organization? Yeah, so the, the Bretton Woods system, it, it kind of started falling apart pretty quickly. I mean, it only lasted about 15 years before things started to really break. And, and this was when the Triffin Dilemma, where during the 1960s, the gold peg to the US dollar, it jumped to $40, and it was supposed to remain pegged at 35 And so what happened was when the US started running these large deficits to pay for the Vietnam War, as well as run large deficits to provide dollars for the whole system, countries around the world start to question if there was enough gold reserves to back that amount of dollars. And so what they started doing was they started redeeming gold, and that wasn't good for the whole system. And so it just started falling apart. And then that led to Richard Nixon's you know, 1971 Nixon shock, where he, he stopped the gold standard, essentially. And so that really just killed the IMF's entire purpose, right? So they no longer had to uh, maintain exchange rates anymore. So they really asked the question, you know, what's our purpose anymore, right? And so there was a shift in the IMF's purpose. In 1976, at the Jamaica Accord, they actually gave back the rights to sovereign nations to manage their own exchange rates. So no longer was the IMF even legally um, allowed to tell countries what to do. Now, there's another thing that happened in 1976, and that was the UK sterling pound absolutely crashed. And uh, really coming out of 1944, 
the UK was in a position where it really had an unsustainable initial exchange rate combined with a ton of debt from World War II. And so they were actually the biggest borrower of the IMF from 1944 to 1976. And in 1976, it just all fell apart. And so what happened was the IMF actually made the biggest loan it has ever made up to that time of $3.9 billion to the UK. And it actually worked. You know, there's a lot of factors, but the optics were that the IMF helped prevent uh, that UK sterling pound from crashing further and it improved economic activity. So in that moment, the IMF really shifted to this lender of last resort. And they're like, okay, we can be this financial firefighter when things or when countries are going through currency crisis or an economic crisis, we can be that person. And then that continued into the 1980s where there was a lot of, of issues going on, right? There was uh, spiking oil prices. There was uh, Volcker jacking up interest rates. And this really caused problems in Latin America in the 1980s. And there was a lot of Latin American countries that were hurt very badly when Volcker spiked interest rates and the oil prices go up. A lot of them were importers of oil and their economies crashed and they needed help and the World Bank couldn't do that by themselves. And so they asked the IMF to come in. And so the IMF that really cemented its status from saving the UK sterling pound in 1976 to in 1985, the US Treasury Secretary called for a new role for the IMF as a more interventionist role in coordinating loans and ensuring policy changes in these developing countries. And that's really since 1985, that has been the IMF's role. Yeah. So then the other question would be, where do they source their funds to actually give the loans from? Yeah. So in 1944, uh, basically, I think around 40 or 50 countries, I think 44, joined the IMF and they submitted money to it. So they, they gave money to the fund. And f- when they when they gave money, they get a certain amount of voting power within the fund. Okay. So now there's like 190 countries as part of the fund. They all give a certain amount of money with the U.S. being the greatest donor of, to the IMF. And so they have the most voting rights. And so right now, the, the U.S. vote share is about 16.5%. And they, they give the most money to the IMF. So they have the most power to dictate policies. And so uh, that's kind of how it started. And it's kind of grown from there to become a much larger organization from its more humble beginnings, I guess you could say. Yeah. And I think the other interesting point to be made here is that the IMF can sometimes push other kinds of non-monetary agendas or forms of control in exchange for a loan. There's a little bit of an, an angle there, isn't there? Yeah. So each each IMF loan comes with terms and conditions. I mean, just like other loans. And that's kind of where there's a lot of criticism because um, who are they to tell a sovereign nation how to run their economic policies. And they say it's voluntary, their advice that comes with these loans. But the borrowing countries get IMF loans in times of crisis. And so their uh, bargaining power, they don't really have any in those moments. And so the IMF's like, this is voluntary. You don't have to do these policy changes. But if you don't do them, we're not going to give you the money. And it's in a time when the, the borrowing nation desperately needs it. And so the policies that are usually associated with these loans are really uh, come from the 1980s, this neoliberalism economic thought of free markets that were pushed by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher at the time. 
And it's basically, uh, you know, deregulation of these uh, third world countries. So essentially it opens up their banking markets, opens up their economy to foreign investors. They usually promote uh, fiscal austerity. So they cut spending. They open up the, they allow the interest rates and the currencies to be dictated by the free market. And, and they privatize state-owned enterprises. So they basically take any kind of public resource and, and they give it to the private sector. And usually that's uh, foreign investors who end up owning those assets. And so um, the policies that are associated with these loans in the terms and conditions um, are really controversial. Um, and they don't really have a good track record in these developing nations. But you're absolutely right that these, these loans aren't just you know, money. They're not just like monetary to help these countries. They come with a kind of influence of the policies of these of these countries. Strings attached, let's say. Strings and attached, so, yeah. So I, I think some components of that might sound good, right? Like as those of us who are who like free markets and liberty and private property rights, deregulation sounds like a great idea and cutting let's say if it's a government that's overspending, cutting the spending sounds like a good idea. But I think the other aspect here is that because of the shifting political winds, there are times where the IMF may be driving a particular agenda that is not really aligned with the rights of the individual and in many cases is driving against that, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and I think uh, one of the biggest critiques of the IMF is that how they implement their policies because it's not this like gradual, you know, in stages where they say, all right, we're going to, you know, open up your financial system. They, they do something called shock therapy where they literally just do this all overnight. They just throw it all overnight. Everything changes. They cut subsidies, they cut food subsidies, they cut spending to healthcare, they cut spending to education. They usually the interest rates jack up, which cause a recession. They devalue their currency, which causes inflation. And this leads to riots because of the way it's implemented. And I think that's a really key point. Um, you know, you can agree with like free markets and stuff like that. But just imagine a country, if you're a person there who had depended on food subsidies from the government, and then overnight, it's just gone. And that's, so it's really not surprising that uh, some of these IMF policies have caused uh, like hundreds of riots um, over the last couple of decades because of how they're implemented. And if you think about like privatization, like the argument for that is that it, it improves efficiency, output, and profitability of the industry, and it's more competitive and all those great things. But that's it's usually not that way because there's a lot of corruption usually involved with these public enterprises that are privatized. And usually it leads to monopolies and oligarchies of foreign investors that control the majority of the industry, jack up prices. They usually cause a lot of labor reforms and freeze wages and either uh, lead to high unemployment. And, and it's mostly these local uh, residents whose jobs are lost. So and then you talk about like currency devaluations. Well, usually they devalue the currency to kind of improve their exports. But then that usually uh, allows foreign investors to come in and import the inflation uh, because uh, they'll come in and just buy things very cheaply. I mean, this is like all the way back from the island of Yap the story that Bitcoin is really familiar with, when these foreign investors come in and they have better money, they can just buy you know, resources and assets very cheaply. And so, yes, the free market's good, but I think there's not enough individual analysis from the IMF on each borrowing country and how to implement these uh, policies responsibly. 
Of course, yeah. And I mean, like even as a quick example, things can be called or termed as a privatization, but in actual fact, it's more like a public-private partnership where let's say there's some nepotism or cronyism going on and the deal goes to a particular individual and it's not actually a genuine free market uh, or capitalist system. And in fact, it's kind of called capitalist, but actually it's more like this kind of unholy alliance of you know big business uh, and the state, which libertarians also do criticize also. So I think those are a few interesting points. And I think it would be good now to chat a little bit about some of these reports that you've been analyzing from the IMF. So uh, do you want to maybe hit some of the highlights before we go into a bit of detail? What are some of the highlights that you've been seeing in the IMF's reporting recently? Yeah, so I, I basically just dug into um, pretty much every publication that they wrote for the last two years. And I was just kind of poking around to see what they were thinking about Bitcoin, essentially. And what I found was that there's just an incredibly negative tone towards proof of work and Bitcoin in general, and that they're trying to uh, highlight the benefits of other consensus mechanisms like proof of stake. And then they also are very supportive of the developments of central bank digital currencies, uh, unsurprisingly. So they think that proof of work is too energy intensive. You know, it's, it's kind of the classic playbook that we're seeing from all kinds of organizations basically saying the exact same thing, where they basically chastise proof of work for its energy usage typically citing very flawed studies. And then they also catastrophize the criminal activity that is being done through Bitcoin. Um, and that's kind of their two big critiques that they just hammer home. And then they, they think that proof of stake has the same assurances as proof of work, which we both know that's not true. But they say that it can be more decentralized. You know, We can remove all the energy. And from my readings, it seems to be more about control rather than an actual problem with the energy. I, I don't think the IMF is very concerned about the environment or the criminal activity because the facts don't show that. The truth is kind of on our side there. And then they, they can't control proof of work. And I don't think they really like that. Right. And we're seeing some of this attack happen in various parts of the industry right now. We're seeing uh, shitcoiners like Chris Larson sponsor to the tune of $5 million, Greenpeace and EWG, anti-proof of work narratives. And I mean, we're seeing it in the IMF as well. And looking at one of the reports, they really buy into this whole, quote unquote, DLT, uh, distributed ledger technology. Whereas those of us in the Bitcoin camp, we tend to see it more like, no, blockchain is not the thing that makes it more efficient. It's the thing that makes it socially scalable. And it's like a cost. And that there are very few things that are worth such a high cost. And generally, money being the only one and maybe debatable about whether identity, some kind of decentralized identity could also work in that sort of use case or in that circumstance. But really, money being the only one. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the, the blockchainers who think that somehow blockchain is making it more efficient and more effective in some way. And that's why we should study this blockchain technology, which obviously we disagree with. But that seems to be the guiding idea, isn't it? Yeah, that's kind of, uh, maybe that's just where they are, man, in their, in their learning. <laughs> maybe they'll turn around, you know, everyone has to go through this that. It's like a 2014 or 2015 narrative. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, central banks move uh, really slow and these uh, large organizations move very slow. So maybe they're just like, you know, eight years behind or something like that. But that seems to be where they're at right now. Like I said, they love kind of exploring all the different ways that blockchains can add to efficiencies and payments and financial inclusion. They, they just 
think that all of these things are really great. And where they're really concerned is the energy as well as regulation. So they're concerned about not being able to stop uh, illicit activity and money laundering kind of it's it's what they always use to justify their regulatory overreach. Um, well, we have to stop money laundering. And and it really bugs me because if you know anything about AML KYC, it's very, very ineffective, right? It's impacted about 0.05% of criminal activity. And so nobody is saying, well, you guys are saying that we need to stop money laundering, but you guys haven't been able to stop it at all up to this point for the last 20 years. And that's from research from Dr. Ron Paul, which I think everyone should check him out. He's done all the yeah. numbers. And I've in fact interviewed Ron Paul as well. So he'll be okay. in the show notes. Perfect. But Sam, I think that's a good point. And I think there's one other highlight from one of these reports. I think it's interesting, right? So just quoting here, it says, consensus mechanisms should not harm or interfere with the global aim to transition to a low carbon economy all right and so that's that's their end quote right and so that's their they've just instantly bought into this frame that as though everyone agrees that ah oh, you must be everyone must be bought into the goal of lowering the carbon they haven't actually considered that actually many many humans on earth may not disagree with that or may not agree with that and actually would see that as very counter or anti-human ideology what do you think well, I agree. I think, you know, the whole ESG movement kind of misses a lot in terms of, you know, the S and the G in terms and, and they focus on the E, right? And also like you could say like the argument is that, you know, life is all carbon, right? We're all made of carbon. <laughs> so I'm not sure if I agree with their take at all. And and I think that the focus should always be that Bitcoin is worth every single watt to have a sound money and for people to be able to save that in a money that can't be inflated and can't be censored in a world where we live in multi-decade high inflation, as well as I think 1.2 billion people live in double-digit inflation today. And we are also seeing the financial system continually be weaponized against innocent civilians, whether that be sanctions or in Canada with the trucker protest. And so we need a money that can't be censored and can't be inflated today. Like it's a problem. And so it's worth every single watt. And the energy use of Bitcoin is completely necessary. It's how it becomes decentralized as well as censorship resistant. So it's incredibly necessary for Bitcoin. You can't separate Bitcoin and its energy usage. You can't change it to proof of stake. Once you do that, it wouldn't be Bitcoin anymore. So um, I think it's just a kind of a silly argument to make. And it really becomes a, do you think that Bitcoin is worth it? And I think if you look at the world today, it's very, very hard to argue that we don't need this right now. We don't need this desperately, in my opinion. Absolutely. And the other common confusion here is this idea that, oh, see, proof of stake is just cheaper. And they, they might argue, oh, see, it's more accessible because lots of people can just, you know, be a validator. But here's the other problem. It's that what do you do when the system breaks down? Because in Bitcoin, there's a very defined way of you figuring out what is the correct state of the chain? What is the correct state of the ledger? Whereas in proof of stake, we don't have that. Like under some kind of adversarial environment, the system devolves and breaks down into trust somebody else. Ask them if, if there's been a breakdown. So as an example, if you're running your node, like your Bitcoin node, if you went offline and then all of a sudden you were offline for a month and then you came back online, how would you know which was the correct chain? Well, in Bitcoin, there's an answer to that question. Like that's what proof of work does. It gives you an objective truth and it, it makes it costly for somebody to bluff you or feed you false history. But in a proof of stake context, you can't do that. So I think that's an important point that a lot of people 
don't understand because they just equivocate. They just think, oh, look, this one blockchain and this other company are doing this and these other people have this DPOS, delegated you know, proof of stake with delegates. And it all sort of boils down to understanding what is the innovation here and why is proof of work essential to Bitcoin? No, I think that's a great point. It's like the, the coma, like if somebody was in a coma from 2012, they would still be able to verify on, on Bitcoin and run the software. Whereas proof of stake, like you said, there's a, it gets a little complicated. There's validators. You almost have to have technical expertise because it changes so much. And so, and, the, and there's a lot more forks that happen in proof of stake and forks are bad for decentralization. They, le- they lead to centralization. And I would recommend people read a blog post by Paul Stork where decentralization really comes down to the cost to run a node. And with Bitcoin, that's the big thing, right? And that was the whole big blocker, small blocker, block size war. But like, check out that article by Paul because he makes a really good point about proof of stake versus proof of work and how in proof of stake, it leads to like your grandma not being able to do it because she would need to have like technical expertise and understand how to validate and do all these things. And it leads to centralization. And that's even what the IMF says in some of these papers. They kind of admit Like, uh, yeah, proof of stake and delegated proof of stake, there's a trend towards centralization and it can lead to an environment where the rich get richer. That's that's verbatim what they say in the IMF papers. Um, But they speak very positively of it still um, because they're so focused on the energy um, of, of proof of work. And you could just in the sections of that one paper, the tone in the proof of work section is just so negative. I mean, they just they just take shots at it. And then the tone in the proof of stake ones are so oh, well, this is kind of a problem, but um, they'll overcome it with designs. But look at all these great things that it does. And so um, just anecdotally, it's just very obvious to me that they're pushing these uh, consensus mechanisms that are inherently more insecure and prone to centralization. And whether they realize that or not, that's another argument but, or debate. But yeah, it's, it's a bit concerning, I'd say. Back to the show in a moment. Lent at HODL HODL is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform. So if you need some fiat liquidity without wanting to sell your Bitcoin, this is an option for you to retain that Bitcoin exposure. You can put up some Bitcoin into an over-collateralized loan, borrow some fiat stable coins, and you will then pay back the loan at the end of that term and receive your Bitcoin back. So with Lend at HODL HODL, all deals are happening directly between users and you are the one setting the terms because you can put up the offers and depending on how long you want to borrow and the interest rate you are looking to pay. So go and check it out. That website is lend.hodlhodl.com. And finally, Brains. They are a Bitcoin mining products and software company. You can use them with Brains OS Plus, which is firmware that you can install on your ASIC machine to improve the efficiency of your Bitcoin miner. And don't forget, Brains also have an analytics dashboard, which I spoke about in a recent episode with Daniel Frumkin from the team. So you can use this analytics dashboard to do all kinds of statistics and run your own numbers on things like profitability calculators and just keep an eye on how the Bitcoin mining industry is growing and developing. So that website is brains.com and it's spelled with two I's. So that's B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Back to the show with Sam. Right. It's like, it's that they give a glowing review for these insecure mechanisms. And then when Bitcoin is along with its actually more secure mechanism, they're like, oh no, the energy use and oh no, we can't, you know, we can't do all our forms of social control. And speaking of social control, and as you mentioned with the AML and CTF or anti-money laundering laws, that uh, this is also another big push in what we've seen. And I think you cited in one of their papers as well, essentially what we're seeing now, especially in 
parts of the world, especially in in the EU, it seems that they are really going hard on this whole idea of VASPs, V-A-S-P-S, Virtual Asset Service Providers, and this rule known as the FATF, so Financial Action Task Force, travel rule. And so um, actually, Dr. Ron Paul and I spoke about that, in, uh, about the FATF and some of those aspects of it. But uh, what's your take on this uh, AML and the VASPs and the travel rule aspect and the impact that will have on Bitcoin? Yeah, well, you know, Dr. Ron Paul definitely understands this stuff more than me. I love learning from him. Um, but, you know, FATF is just another example of one of these non-governmental organizations that make these guidelines that they act like they're voluntary and they're just guidelines, but they're not really because they can just gray list or blacklist any country and basically excommunicate them from the entire financial system if they don't adopt the guidelines. And so, um, you know, the FATF guidelines call virtual asset service providers, that's just any kind of exchange or, uh, you know, provider in the industry. And they basically want them to do due diligence on customers and non-customers for transactions of anything greater than $1,000. And this is greater than what's required in the traditional financial system, which is a $3,000 minimum. But they say that because of the particular risks of virtual assets, that the stricter standards are justified. And not only that, but they, they admit that there aren't uh, sufficient tech solutions to even comply for VAST to comply because it gets really complicated. Like, how do you know the information of a wallet that you're sending Bitcoin to or something? Like, it just doesn't really make sense. It doesn't mold well with the, the current regulatory framework and just the technology of, of Bitcoin. But still, the IMF is advising policymakers to demand this travel rule anyway. And so it's almost impossible. Like, what are VAST supposed to do? Like, they literally cannot comply with that travel rule, but the IMF is still advising policymakers to go along with it anyway. And then I really get bugged with the stricter standards because, you know, not to go like to the fiat system and talk about all the fraud and illicit activity there, because that's been said many, many times. But just like the crypto crime report put out by Chainalysis, you know, it did find that only 0.15% of total crypto volume is used for illicit activities. And so what are they really talking about? Like why the stricter standards? And I think they just really catastrophize uh, the criminal activity that's going on. They bring up weapons of mass destruction uh, multiple times in these papers and that how virtual assets are being used to finance them. And I dug into that and didn't really see any connection, direct connection between virtual assets and um, weapons of mass destruction. So I can't really fathom why that's even included in these papers, except to be shocking to justify the stricter standards that they're trying to advise policymakers to do. Right. And they essentially seize on one tiny, you know, small fraction of what's going on. I mean, it would be like saying, when I sell you this car, Sam, there's a chance, there's a chance you might just go maliciously go out there and run all over all these people. Therefore, I'm not going to sell you this car unless, you know, I am allowed to install an autopilot on it and to stop you because, you know, it's for your own safety and the safety of the pedestrians that you might go around. You know, it's kind of a similar kind of thing. There's no acceptance of the benefit. That, oh, hey, actually, that car might allow you to do your job, right? To be able to drive to your workplace or whatever or to, you know. So it, it just seems like they really focus and zero in on this like tiny little case and then say, ah, oh, look, see, therefore we've found it, we've proved it. This thing is bad and we, it has to be stopped. Yeah, they, they do a cost like benefit analysis, but they don't do any of the benefit analysis part. <laughs> they just focus <laughs> on the costs and, and, and kind of talk badly about it. it. You know, that's kind of the general theme throughout all these publications.
Right. And I think it's it's challenging because uh, those of us working in the industry, right, you and I are both working at Swan. We don't want these regulations or rules, but that's the if, if you don't comply with these things, then your license will be shut down or you'll be shut down as a business. And so it's, it's a very awkward thing that the government is basically putting that obligation out there and essentially driving a, a certain fear and hysteria in the people to make these entities or just to let these entities just keep going with FATF and these AML rules that are just getting pushed out onto everybody. So that's a bit of a shame. So uh, let's chat about uh, one of the other ones. So there's a report where they mention crypto corruption and capital control. So what's going on in this report? In that in that report, they basically it's kind of the same thing, right? They're they're trying to make Bitcoin how it could be used to evade sanctions and how it could be used to evade any kind of capital controls. And again, just like painting Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, I guess more broadly, uh, negatively. And I think they talk about uh, cryptoization in that paper. So they kind of do a term I came across, which is the risk of currency substitution uh, in emerging markets through not just Bitcoin, but also stable coins, where they're really concerned because if all the citizens start to flee their local currencies, it makes it really difficult for the central banks of that jurisdiction to implement their policy because nobody's using their currency if everyone opts out. And this has been happening in dollarization in a lot of emerging markets for years. So Turkey is a prime example of this, where the central bank has been going through a really hard time lately. Uh, the lira has been crashing and they've been trying to implement policy. But uh, dollarization is so widespread in Turkey for a variety of reasons um, that makes it really hard to effectively implement their central bank policies. And so this is happening now with digital assets. Um, across the world. And so the IMF is concerned because it, it weakens central bank credibility, kind of highlights the unsound policies of the currencies because people are trying to flee them because of the inflation. And then it makes them harder to implement that policy. And so the IMF is really concerned about this rising cryptoization that's occurring in emerging markets because it makes the jobs of central banks a lot harder and kind of shines a spotlight on how ineffective they are. Yeah. And I think in a similar vein as well to the past one we were just talking about they, they again say oh look see people are really corrupt and the corrupt people are hiding their money in bitcoin and they they again focus on this like small percentage of maybe these are like oligarchs and like you know tiny people tiny percentage of the overall population of people who might be using bitcoin to theoretically run away with all this money and we saw similar arguments even with this whole uh, russia and ukraine thing right so there were arguments that oh see yeah. the russian oligarchs are using bitcoin to run away with the money therefore bitcoin is bad for humanity and I think there was an interesting argument I saw that essentially the large oligarchs wouldn't be able to actually move around that kind of money through the, as in if they wanted to sell that Bitcoin back out for fiat, they wouldn't be able to do that in the fiat system. They just didn't have that kind of liquidity. And so this whole argument that like they were going to use Bitcoin to get around sanctions, especially for the oligarchs at that kind of size of wealth, it just wasn't really that feasible. I mean, yes, of course, nobody's denying like this idea that, yeah, you theoretically you could use bitcoin to get around sanctions but the question of were they able to do it in practice at this time given the liquidity and given the market it was very very unlikely but nevertheless it was driven as a fud angle of oh my god look bitcoin is so bad it's helping these bad people yeah and even the white house even said that 
like they agreed. They said, well, it's, it's probably too small to even handle the necessary amount of monies that would need to be evaded <laughs> via the sanctions because of how small Bitcoin still is as an industry and crypto as an industry. So even the White House admitted that, but that didn't stop like mainstream publications from spreading that FUD and getting clicks on their articles. So I think that's exactly right. Just from a technical perspective, it would have been extremely difficult for Russia to do anything meaningfully to evade sanctions, uh, given the size of the market today. I mean, they would basically had to have some kind of whole program already in place and and been really smart about splitting the funds up between a ton of different... Like, I don't even know how they would go about doing it, to be honest with you. It would be very, very challenging. So... Yeah, even the White House said it. So again, this is just FUD being spread by people who are against Bitcoin for whatever reason or are threatened by its continued adoption. Right. And so I guess bringing that to, I guess, solutions then, where do you see things going and in what ways can this be pushed back against, right? This IMF and their continual advancement of the the so-called correct, uh, again, quotes, social, correct social agendas. Yeah. So when you look at the IMF, and one of the reasons why I look into the IMF is because I really consider it a international human rights issue when it comes down to it. Because their austerity policies that they put on these developing nations, um, they deepen the crises. And this isn't the first time. And I I feel like uh, one really important thing that we should probably go into is the Asian debt crisis of 1997, because it really highlights the IMF and what they do. And with the Asian debt crisis, they basically, the IMF opened up the entire Thailand, South Korea, Indonesia, and Malaysia, opened up their entire markets to foreign investors in the early 90s. Bunch of capital flowed in, bunch of speculation flowed in. Long-term capital management was a hedge fund that blew up and it caused all kinds of contagion. And then all of that foreign speculation money flowed out of those nations and it caused crisis, a huge debt crisis, right? And so the IMS policies to deregulate kind of allowed the crisis to happen because it built up all this debt in these uh, foreign markets from foreign investors. And that was like the wholesale, uncritical adoption of financial deregulation that I kind of talked about earlier. Now, after the crisis happened, the IMF implemented their policies or told them to do that in order to get loans, which is they cut fiscal spending. They allowed the interest rates to spike, which caused the recession to get deeper. And, And there was a whole report that showed how that actually deepened the recession. Now, there was one country that stood up against this, and that was Malaysia. Malaysia said, no, we're not going to do your policies. And this was a whole thing in the late 90s where Malaysia stood up against the IMF and said, your policies are not working. We are not going to do this. And if you look at how Malaysia did compared to the other nations of the Asian debt crisis, they had a faster recovery. They had a more inclusive recovery. So in terms of wealth inequality, and they had lower unemployment. And so to me, that is a clear case that these nations don't necessarily have to give up their sovereignty and listen to the IMF and take on debt because they can do their own things and say no, right? And Malaysia proved that. And so to me, what nations can do now is they have an alternative because back then, if you're in an Asian debt crisis, uh, those nations did not have another lender of last resort to go to. They could have done Malaysia and said, no, I'm not going to take on debt. But 
they didn't, and they didn't have anyone else to go to, and they had to take on the terms and conditions associated with those IMF loans and do those harmful policies. And um, now with Bitcoin, there is a there's an open network where it has financial products being built today. El Salvador being the first one with the volcano bond that allows them to raise debt without any kinds of terms and conditions, and they can maintain their you know sovereign rights and use the funds as they see fit as a nation. Um, and they don't have they can kind of get off from IMS boot on their neck. They can kind of take it off and and they can say, all right we're going to use this the way we want to. And so that's why I get really excited about Bitcoin specifically is because they could potentially shrink uh, the power of the IMF that they have over these uh, low-income developing nations. Right. And I think it reminds me very much of our our previous chat about uh, the BIS, where it's like this theme of this international organization is taking away the rights from those countries and arguably cutting against the rights of the people in those countries. And I think while generally speaking, if a country's been spending too much, yeah, it's a good thing. They do need to tighten their belt. And maybe there does need to be some initial pain. But at the same time, I think the governance of different countries and regions and for people is going to be better if it's closer to the people who are being impacted. So generally speaking- Right. It's yes. better that, you know, uh, the states control something than the federal. And it's better that the local mayor controls things than the state, because at least he's closer to what's happening and can face some social pressure if he's making bad decisions. Whereas what happens is things get pushed up to that supranational level, then governments don't even like national governments don't even have much say in what goes on. And maybe they're getting also screwed in the terms on the deal, too. Yeah. And they, that's another criticism is that the IMF doesn't take any uh they have very low communication with the borrowing countries the people on the ground like what's actually going on and they have not that much empathy towards what their policies do because they don't live there like who cares like they don't know the culture they don't know anything about them uh they just see numbers on a spreadsheet and and that's all they see they just see their models and so you're exactly right and back to the human rights issue like if your policies end up reducing access to healthcare, reducing access to education, uh, food subsidies, and cause famine, or cause so, uh, kind of the breakdown of social cohesion in the industry, which leads to riots and instability, which leads to lower employment, who is responsible? You know, who is complicit in that? Is it the is it the advisor who who said? We're going to do these policies which cause the riots and which cause the political instability. Should they have responsibility? And I'm not a lawyer and complicity is tricky, but if an international organization is responsible for a wrongful act and they know they do it and it's against their uh, policies or their mission, you know, I think that it deserves criticism. And I don't hear any criticism in mainstream media about the IMF. In fact, I saw for the first time in a long time a critical article against the IMF last week in The Guardian. And it was the first time I've seen it. And it was really good to see because I just don't hear anything about the IMF that has this power to make or break sovereign nations by deciding whether or not they get loans and if based on their policy recommendations or not, if they enforce them. So it's a problem. And this is why I dig into this, because to me, the IMS policies do not contribute to economic recovery, um, but instead have negative consequences in terms of economic growth, debt ratios, equality, and all kinds of serious human rights issues. Right. Yeah, I think that's... And, and so if we look at El Salvador, they're, they're taking a different pathway. And 
famously, yeah. uh, it seems President Bekele has basically <laughs> told the IMF no. And so it'll be really yeah. interesting to see where that goes. We're starting to see El Salvador obviously adopt Bitcoin. We're seeing uh, this small nation in Africa, Central African uh, Republic. I think they've got a population of about 5 million. A poor country, uh, GDP per capita. I think when I was just doing some research, is quite a bit poorer than El Salvador on a per capita basis. But it is going to be interesting to see what happens if more and more countries try to go this way and try to go the Bitcoin direction and see what kind of opportunities they could get, whether that's tourism and uh, increased economic investment and development from that angle. So uh, I think those are some interesting pathways. What kinds of things are you looking out to see for the countries who are trying to take the Bitcoin alternative? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of impatience going on with El Salvador. People are like, where's the volcano bond? Like, it's delayed. And they just started this whole experiment less than a year ago. And um, I think we need to be patient about them implementing this. And there's their nation uh, that is trying to better themselves. And there's other problems in that country that they're trying to address right now. But the volcano bond is, is happening. I believe that. And if you look at their growth, in the last year, it's been amazing. It's been one of the highest growing nations in the world in terms of GDP. And um, the tourism that it's brought in, it's, it's been incredible. Uh, it's put El Salvador on the map. And again, they're going a different route. And, and the IMF has not worked for them uh, for the last couple of decades, if you know anything about the history of El Salvador and the IMF. And so it's very encouraging to see the hope that I see in El Salvador, uh, you know, from all these uh, stories on the ground. And, and you have to be a little bit, I guess, critical of, of that. Like, you, you got to understand it could be like uh, only a portion of the picture. But at the same time, uh, the data shows it as well in terms of, uh, like I said, the GDP growth and things like that. And so um, with the African country, um, again, I read the announcement and it was very encouraging because they said exactly what I said, where, you know, it can give us hope. We can build for a better future for future generations and it can, while we maintain our sovereignty. And so that's really important, right? So they don't have to give away their sovereignty to foreign companies or organizations or in that African country's case, the CFA. Um, so it's, it's really exciting to see. It's exciting to see, um, uh, these countries adopt sound digital money uh, that people can own, people can spend it, fixed supply that's enforced by math and code, regardless of geopolitical uh, politics or foreign agenda. Um, and so we're going to see more and more of these financial products built on digital sound money. And we're going to see all the effects that that will have in these countries. And I think we're going to continue to see it spread across the globe as people see this as a better option. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a great spot to finish up here, Sam. Where can people find you online? Uh, I'm usually on Twitter. So you can find me at, at Sam Calla, uh, S-A-M-C-A-L-L-A-H. Um, I'm also posting on the Swan blog. So you can come at swan.com. And yeah, so I work at Swan as an analyst. So check us out. Uh, I think we're a great place to to buy Bitcoin and to learn about Bitcoin. So people like you and, and me write about it and talk about it. And uh, I think it's a great group of people. But that's just my shill of Swan at the end here. So <laughs> That's uh, right. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure yeah. um, everyone learned a lot about the IMF for this episode. And uh, hopefully everyone will be taking a more critical eye to some of these supranational organizations. So thank you, Sam, for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Stefan. Appreciate it, man. Have a good day. 
I really think these large international, supranational organizations do need more scrutiny, especially organizations like the IMF. Get the show notes for this episode at stefanlevera.com slash 373, and you can see the earlier episode with Sam there, as well as the earlier episode with Ron Paul, also talking about some of the AML FATF stuff. Thanks for listening, and I will see you in the Citadels.